Uh, As we continue to make our way through the book of Daniel, we now come to one of its more famous passages. The writing is on the wall. And if you've heard that phrase before, it's an ominous quip. I heard it once when a girl was breaking up with me. The writing is on the wall. It's very romantic. And, uh, you know, it's usually a sign. Something impending is coming. Some sort of doom. Something ominous is happening or about to take place. The writing is on the wall. It comes from our chapter today. It comes out of Daniel chapter 5. If you are just joining us, a couple decades have gone by in Daniel since chapter 4 and chapter 5. King Nebuchadnezzar has been front and center throughout the book of Daniel. He's a surprising character because he starts off rather antagonistic toward Israel and their God. But then he starts to acknowledge God. And then he even starts to praise God. And in the last chapter, he even worships God. But now he's in the grave. And there's been a succession of rulers since his reign. Uh, And now on the throne is Belshazzar, a son from his lineage. And Belshazzar is quite unlike his father. At the end of his life, Nebuchadnezzar was proud, but he was humbled. And it was a great uh, reversal of circumstances that brought him into the kingdom of God. And it brought about healing in his life and a new way of living. But Belshazzar is the opposite in every way. He is proud like his father, but he will not be humbled. And so the passage shows us the outcome for all of us who are unwilling to humble ourselves before the God of the universe. And the passage says this to us, the writing is on the wall. So let's figure out what that means. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Daniel chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, uh, grab one of our great church Bibles, take it home with you. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, Everything's also going to be following along on the screen behind me. So we're going to jump in at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. If we want to get a sense of Belshazzar, we should imagine some of the socialites uh, from the, the last century. You know, Truman Capote's black and white ball or Hugh Hefner's uh, Playboy Mansion parties. He lands somewhere between there. If those references mean nothing to you, just imagine someone who's really great at throwing a rager. 1,000 people, ample food, even more wine. And on the guest list are the most important and influential people you would know in the city. And at his side, Belshazzar and his lords and his wives, but also his concubines. And this is out of protocol. This is unusual. You know, your concubines were your royally approved mistresses, but they stayed out of the spotlight. They stayed away from the public events. So the fact that he is bringing the concubines out in a royally sanctioned event signifies something. This party is not just about entertainment. It's also about indulging in pleasure. As one commentator says, it was an orgy of wine. But then he injects a rather strange element into this party. He says, okay, we're being entertained, we're indulging in pleasure, but let's throw in just a dash of religious sacrilege, because that always livens up a party. So he he grabs the vessels 
uh, from the temple in Jerusalem that his father had taken, and they bring him out, and he and his lords and his wives and his concubines drink wine from these sacred objects of Israel's God. And it's shocking. That alone would be shocking. But then on top of it, he dedicates them to the gods of wood and bronze and iron and whatnot. See, this party gives us a picture into the dominant culture of Babylon. This party is an expression of the Babylonian spirit. It indulges and it ridicules. It enjoys and it desecrates. But here's what makes the party even more unusual on this particular evening. Babylon is on the brink of destruction. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And when Daniel interpreted it to him, he liked the interpretation. He said, look, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom will last for your lifetime. But once you're dead, Babylon will be overthrown. And we start to see that happen. And from the history books, we know at this particular moment, on this evening, the Persian Empire is growing and is on the rise. And the army led by Cyrus the Great has surrounded the city of Babylon. They're outside the city walls. Death is knocking on Babylon's gate. So why is Belshazzar throwing a party at such a time as this? Should he not be rallying the troops for battle? Or if, the, if their defeat is imminent, should they not be sending out uh, the ambassadors to negotiate a peaceful surrender or anything other than throwing a party? Now, it could be that Belshazzar just wants to go out with a bang. You know, go out guns blazing, partying. Or it could be that he believed that the walls of Babylon could not be overthrown. They were incredible. Or it could be, and I think it's this, Belshazzar feels trapped. And he's coping. He's coping with the fear of loss. He's coping with the fear of ruin. He's coping with the fear of death through a cocktail of entertainment, pleasure, and religion. So whatever his reasons for this party, we know that entertainment, pleasure, and religion are the tools we use to avoid life, especially if we feel trapped. If you've had a long day, when you get home, you're on the couch, you throw on Netflix, and you just start watching your way through it. Or maybe you're on YouTube or Instagram, or you're going to the concert night after night. Whatever it may be, you're being entertained. But why? It's to numb out, isn't it? It's to escape. You're disabling parts of yourself to cope with being tired or exhausted or disappointed or stressed or hungry for something to satisfy. If you turn to alcohol or drugs or sex as a way to make your life more enjoyable, to infuse it with a bit more excitement, are you not simply trying to make life better, which implies that the baseline is not so great? And maybe it isn't alcohol, sex, or drugs. Maybe you turn to the extravagant meals or the the snacks or romantic inquiries, whatever it is, but you're you're feeling good to the point of excess. Some of these things in their right and proper place are good, but you're indulging in the pleasures to the point of excess. You're using pleasure as a solution to some sort of internal problem. But even religion can be misused. We miss this sometimes. Now, we may not desecrate objects like Belshazzar here, but perhaps you take great pleasure in debating religion or tearing down faith or proving that your faith is the correct one and someone else's is incorrect. Or you make religion all about the rule-keeping in absence of God. 
So it's all about the checklist that you can attain and maintain so that you can derive a sense of goodness about yourself and feel good about yourself. But if that's the case, then you're just using religion because you're seeking after a sense of feeling good or you're seeking after a sense of feeling control in a world that feels out of control. You see, entertainment or pleasure or religion is often how we cope with feeling trapped in circumstances beyond our control. That's what's happening here with Belshazzar. And it backfires. I want us to see that. It backfires. As soon as he defiles the temple objects, the party comes screeching to a halt. We read in uh, verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And like the previous chapters, all the experts can't help him. He brings in the, the, the counselors and the wise men and the enchanters and the sorcerers, all the experts in spiritual phenomena. And they look at the writing on the wall and say, we don't know. We don't know what it says. And then we're told again in verse 9 that he was greatly alarmed. His color changed and even his lords were perplexed. Belshazzar was using the party to distract from what was going on outside of the city, to distract from the danger outside the city's walls. But what we use in life to avoid things usually turns on us. Or it doesn't keep the truth out. Or it doesn't keep the world at bay. It doesn't actually protect us from reality slowly seeping back in, does it? Prior to my first encounter uh, with Jesus, there was a long season, about 18 months, uh, where I turned to drugs to cope. And this is not an endorsement, just to be clear. Uh, And initially, it was casual, very West Coast, you know, social. It's just what you do. But then it became habitual. And it didn't matter if I was with people or on my own. I used several different drugs occasionally and several other drugs consistently, every day, multiple times a day. But then out of nowhere, at about the 18-month point, it all changed. One day, I just started having terrible anxiety anytime I was high. And it was as if death was literally knocking on the door. I would be convinced that I was plunging towards my peril. And yet, I kept doing it. Because I lived under this illusion that, well, maybe this time it'll be like how it used to be. But the things I was using to avoid life turned on me and made life even more unmanageable. And look, if you're in the, that vicious cycle of addiction, we want you to know we'll walk through that with you. You don't have to be ashamed in bringing that up. We're not going to stand above you. Instead, we're going to sit with you and say, what's the next step? How do we walk with you? Because the God of the universe wants to liberate you from that. And there are people that he has equipped with expertise and skill and wisdom and knowledge who can walk alongside you and, and help you through this. And through his power and through the grace of the people he's put on this earth, you can be liberated. You don't have to stay there. Because what we use to avoid life ultimately turns on us or it fails us. Because illusion is never more powerful than truth. If you turn to entertainment, eventually the series ends. And full confession, right? Like, have you ever had that moment, the series ends? Like, not just season finale, but 
series finale, and then you have like a week-long depression. It's like, Jack Bauer, come back, Jack! You know, like, and then you just can't get out of the house for a week because Jack Bauer doesn't exist anymore. You know, and then the, the curtains close, and now you have to wait till the next time a show is on, or the next concert, or the next thing on your bucket list. But eventually, when you live for entertainment, the result is this, you've seen it all. Right? Have you ever felt that way? I've seen it all. Nothing new under the sun. And this cynicism starts to kick in. Nothing's ever good enough or new enough or interesting enough or different enough or surprising enough. And it fails to keep you engaged and interesting. You see, entertainment turns on us. Instead of entertaining us, it produces a cynicism that stops us from enjoying the very things we used to enjoy. If you turn to pleasure, initially you're gripped by it. I'm not going to deny that. You might be gripped by the euphoria of sex or the inhibition of being drunk or the foreignness of being high, but eventually it normalizes. Eventually it loses that excitement. And so you have an option before you. You can, you can try new partners or you can go to different parties, more intense parties or a different cocktail of drugs, but the result will always be the same. Over time, the effects of pleasure lessen and they become normal and you're constantly trying to indulge in things to regain that first experience, but it never comes back. Pleasure, when pursued as the ultimate end, turns on us and religion can do the same. Maybe you're spiritual but not religious and you meditate and you start to find peace or maybe you start to prayer and it seems like prayers are being answered or you feel like you're growing as a person and the books are always giving you some sort of new insight about the world and it's exciting. But over time, all these things start to become normal too. And you start to get disillusioned because the religion or spiritual experience was never about the truth. It was centered around you, not God. It was simply a tool to make you feel better, to give you peace, to make you a better person. But when you don't feel better, when the peace isn't steady, when you don't seem to be growing at the rate or becoming uh, the person you hoped to be at the pace you wanted it to go, you're disappointed and you're disillusioned and you start to question the religion rather than acknowledging that you were still worshiping yourself rather than God. You're using religion as an aim for your own desires rather than as a means to meet the living God of the universe. Entertainment, pleasure, religion, it'll all turn on us ultimately. The party, it lets Belshazzar down. But really, it's the whole ethos and culture of Babylon that's let him down. Because the party is just a glimpse into the lifestyle of Babylon. And even though we're thousands of years later, the similarities are unnerving, really. Our culture promotes indulging in entertainment. It, it promotes chasing after new experiences, being oversaturated in pleasure, even having a vague spirituality, if that suits you, so long as you keep it to yourself. We live for ourselves. We try to make the most of life, attempting to experience all of its benefits before the clock runs out. But ultimately, everything that our culture promotes, everything our culture pushes forward as a distraction from the challenges of life, whether it's to distract ourselves from pain or to escape from discontentment or to, to cope with the fear of death, whatever we turn to to deal with these things, it will let us down because they cannot deliver. Because if you're trying to avoid life, if that's what is at the heart here, if you're trying to cope with life, you're actually then trying to avoid the author of life as well. If you avoid life, you're avoiding the author of life. 
that Belshazzar can no longer avoid God. He can't do it. He doesn't have that option anymore because God crashed his party. Now, I don't want you to leave here and be like, God's a party crasher. That's Christianity summed up. That is not true. What we'll see is God throws a much better and more life-giving party than we could ever imagine. But he crashes Belshazzar's party. There may be danger lurking outside the walls of Babylon. He may have been avoiding that, but now the writing is on the wall. He can't ignore that. It is before his face and his knees are shaking. And as his knees are trembling, the queen goes, hey, didn't your dad have this guy like Daniel or something? Like interpret dreams. I think that's exactly how it went down. But Daniel, like wasn't there this guy who could do this stuff? And so they get Daniel. In verse 13, the king said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. You see the irony here? He has just desecrated objects of Israel's God, and now he turns to one of the exiles of Israel and says, help me, what have I done? Nevertheless, Daniel stands before him because Daniel is committed to seeking the welfare of the city. And it is not always comfortable and it does not always lead to situations that are easy. But Daniel is committed to seeking after the well-being of Babylon. But he's no longer young. We start in chapter one. He's a youth, right? The decades have passed. He's old now. And because he's old... He doesn't get straight to the point. He starts with a history lesson, a history of Babylon, because that's what old people do, right, Don? <laughs> a history lesson, but it has a point. It begins in verse 18, which is a summary of the previous chapter. So if you missed last week, this is a great summary to catch up. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave them, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of humankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys." He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of humankind and sets over it whom he will. But the real kicker is that Belshazzar already knew all of this. Daniel continues in verse 22, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, You've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Belshazzar is thoroughly entertained. He's bathed in pleasure. But he was arrogant enough to make a mockery of God. When he has the vessels brought out, he dedicates them to these gods of different objects. He praises inanimate objects, which 
Daniel emphasizes, do not see or hear or know. And what the passage shows us is that Belshazzar has also become like what he worships. Belshazzar doesn't see, he doesn't hear, and he doesn't know. He can't read or interpret the writing on the wall because he's not learned the lesson that was already plainly set before him. He's not humbled himself before God. Instead, he's become an arrogant fool. Arrogant because he wants to lift himself up above God. And a fool for the exact same reason. He wants to lift himself up above God. But here's what we might not see in ourselves. We do this too. When your whole life is centered around entertainment or pleasure or empty religion or anything other than God, if you, if you live for the next thing, if this is how you find life and purpose and meaning, you may not see or hear or know it, but you're lifting yourself up above God. You're saying to God, my entertainment is more important than you. My pleasure and my indulgence in the things that I enjoy is more important than you, O king of the universe. Or if you feel like you can't face reality, maybe you're overwhelmed and it feels like the world is crashing against your gate and you want to escape and you want to cope. Have you ever noticed how in mindless entertainment or senseless pleasure or empty religion, you don't actually see, you don't see God, you don't hear God? You don't know God. You're tuned out from him. But what this passage shows us is we will become like the things we worship. Have you ever met someone like their whole life is about entertainment? It's about shows. It's about enjoying life. It's about pleasure. It's just rampant hedonism. And you would never say this out loud because you're a Canadian, but they're shallow. They're shallow. All they can talk about is the next show or the last thing they did or the thing down the the road. If you ever met someone who only lives for pleasure, only lives for feeling good, only lives for constructing circumstances that lift them up and make them feel alive, have you ever been afraid that they might just be using you? They become like what they worship. They use things for their own benefit, and they will use people too. Same for people who give themselves to religious rule-keeping, who want to feel good about themselves because they're a good and moral and upright person. Have they ever appeared to you to become self-righteous or hypocritical? So you become like what you worship. And if we fail to honor God with our lives, if instead we choose to live for ourselves and to use different things to help us cope with the challenges of life, we see in this passage, the writing is on the wall. It's a warning. Let's see what it means. Daniel finally gets to the matter at hand in verse 24. He says, From God's presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is in the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The writing is on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Belshazzar, your life has been evaluated before the God of the universe, from the God from whom no secrets are hidden. He sees you through and through. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows your desires. He knows every action you've ever taken, the ones you remember and the ones you even forget. He has weighed your life and you've been found wanting. The kingdom's going to be taken from you. 
and it's going to be handed over to another. And the chapter concludes in verse 30 through 31. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king of, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And the history books confirm it. The finger of God inscribed writing on the wall. It was a sign of judgment that was to come. And Belshazzar trembled. He trembled just at the writing at the wall, but then the finger of God pointed at him and he says, you've been found wanting. You're proud. You've lifted yourself up. You won't be humbled. You won't repent. At any moment, Belshazzar could have taken a different angle. He could have said, I repent. I, I have sinned against the God of the universe. I am sorry for desecrating your temple objects. Daniel, intercede for me. Help me. We've seen that God will answer those prayers in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. But Belshazzar won't learn from his father in this moment. He buckles down in his pride, and it's the end of him. When the finger of God points at us, when you have spiritual experiences that I would call authentic or true, uh, there's this assumption that spiritual experiences are going to initially be pleasurable. They're going to be nice and happy and good. And that is sometimes happens. But there is a true and authentic spiritual experience that is terrifying in which the finger of God points at you and you are exposed and is a little disruptive. Our knees might become, begin to tremble. You might go pale when you encounter God. When I first started following Jesus, I had little to no clue about what I was doing. Uh, you know, I read one book, committed my life to Jesus, moved to Vancouver, uh, moved in with my girlfriend, kept drinking, kept doing drugs, kept living exactly how I'd been living as if nothing had changed. I'll never forget this. The first Christian friend I ever made in my undergraduate, uh, Clark, he actually joined this church and then moved to Toronto. But Clark, uh, in the midst of this, I was like, hey, Clark, you should come over for my birthday party, which is October 8th, in case you're wondering, tomorrow. And uh, <laughs> Clark, you should come over. And he's like the like, nicest dude, like so upstanding and and clean and tidy and sober. And he comes over to my house. And it was like, it was like as if he walked into a Tupac Shakur music video. Like the look on his face, he could not comprehend. He's just sitting on the couch between like friends drinking and doing drugs. And he's sitting there like, what on earth is happening? And he loved me enough to be like, Alistair, I really think you should sit down and read the Bible sometime. And it wasn't in a judgy way. It's just, he, didn't, he didn't point out all the things I was doing wrong, which was plenty. He just said, you should take a look at what this actually says. I said, yeah, that's a great idea. I believe in Jesus. Now I should read the Bible. I'm going to be a morally educated person. So I open up the Bible. And I start at the beginning because that's where you start a book. Genesis, chapter one, God created the world. Great, got it. Chapter two, uh, people. Okay, confusing. Chapter three, can't get past it. Chapter three, can't get past it. If you don't know chapter three, it's about Adam and Eve. It's about when a serpent deceived them. The serpent uh, symbolizes Satan. And they had one rule, one law to show their faithfulness and allegiance to God. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they listen to the serpent's voice. They choose that God is not trustworthy, that God must somehow be withholding from them. They doubt the trustworthiness and the character and the goodness of God. And so they take and reach and they eat and they see that it tasted good. And as I read that, I started to shake. As I read that, it was as if I could taste the fruit in my own mouth. I could sense 
the truth of what the story was saying. The word of God was not something I was reading. The word of God was reading me. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through the heart. It pierces the marrow. It shows you what's really going on in there. And I saw for the first time with more clarity than I've ever seen before. I have sin coursing through my veins. I have rejected the God of the universe. And I've done so gladly. And I was shaking and I was trembling and I was terrified and I was scared. When God's finger points at you, it unveils you. It has that effect. But it's not because God's angry. I think we, we need to make that clear. When God points his finger at you, yes, it will be scary because it exposes the trap. It exposes all the different things that you've constructed in your life to avoid the reality of death, to avoid the reality of God, to avoid the reality of your own finitude, to, to avoid the struggle of life. It exposes all these things you've been gripping onto and holding, white-knuckling, hoping that it will fix your life, and it shows you it all when the finger of God points. When God points out our sin, of course it's not comfortable. When God points out the things we've turned to instead of him, when he points out the way these things will ultimately let us down, of course it's disorienting. And then when God points out all the ways he's tried to speak to you, it's a little harrowing. You see, Belshazzar's problem, it wasn't ignorance. He ignored all these signs in his life. He ignored his father's life and the lesson there. He ignored the miracles. He turned a blind eye to the work of God. Instead, he turned to the partying and the feasts and the concubines and the power and the wealth and the prestige. Those were the things he was holding on to with uh, tight hands. Those were the things who defined who he was. Those were the things that gave his purpose. He chose these things over the God of the universe who was making himself known in the lives of the people around him and trying to make himself known in the life of Belshazzar. And now the writing is on the wall and he still refuses to see it. He still refuses to humble himself and respond to a message that he can no longer deny. You see, Belshazzar's problem then wasn't ignorance, it was insolence. He refused to humble himself. And I think it's important for us to hear this. Having all the right information doesn't mean the right response. Some of you are so bright. So, many of you are smarter than me and you should be up here. But having the right information about religion or God, being able to debate, being able to say something intellectual, if it does not lead to humility, if it does not lead to repentance, if it does not lead to worship of that God, you have all the right information but the wrong response. No amount of knowledge can guarantee the transformation of your heart unless you humble yourself before God and recognize that you need mercy from the creator of the universe. But at the very moment when everything could have changed for Belshazzar, he could have humbled himself like his father did. He could have said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But he didn't. At that moment, he was drunk. He was indulged in pleasure. And he buckled down. And he effectively cut himself off from life and reality, from the author of life and the grace that would have readily been his. So when the writing is on the wall, 
When the writing of the, of the wall says your life is being weighed by the God of the universe and no amount of rule keeping, no amount of morality is going to cut it. Your life is found wanting before the God who sees all things. I want you to know there's another option other than the Belshazzar option. Perhaps this is why Jesus issues such a strong warning in Luke. I know it's easy to think, this message is of judgment in the scriptures. Like, this is why I get uncomfortable about Christianity. But Jesus actually addresses judgment quite a lot in the Gospels. And he does so because he loves us. He says, look, when time wraps up, at the end of time, everyone is going to be raised from the dead. The living and the dead will appear before the judgment throne of God, the God from whom no secrets are hidden, the God who knows you through and through. And when your life appears before this God, you're going to be found wanting. This is the truth. Because no one's perfect and God is perfect. None of us have been perfectly holy and God is holy. And so Jesus stands and he says, the writing's on the wall, this is coming. So here's his warning in Luke 21, 34 through 36. Take care that your hearts aren't dulled by drinking parties, drunkenness, and the anxieties of day-to-day life. Don't let the final day fall upon you unexpectedly like a trap. It will come upon everyone who lives on the face of the whole earth. Stay awake at all times, praying you're strong enough to escape everything that's about to happen and to stand before the Son of Man. See, when our lives are found wanting, when we finally see the writing on the wall at the end of history, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, when we know in our core and cannot deny that we have nothing to offer, cannot prove ourselves, are not good enough, can step no further into the presence of God, there is another option still. We cling to Jesus. The writing is on the wall because God loves us. And so Jesus came into the world and was crucified and bore our punishment, was judged for us, gave his life for us so we could have grace, so we could have life. You see, we've been messing around in the shadow of death our whole lives. We've been denying that death will be our end, and we deny even further that there will ever be a judgment. Jesus comes into the world and says, this is what is coming. This is where your life is heading. And I love you so much that I will give my life for you so you can be forgiven, so you can find mercy, and so you can find grace in your time of need. And in the meantime, he encourages us to stay awake. That's the invitation. Start to avoid the things you've used to avoid life. Stop giving yourself over to these things that are ultimately robbing you of life. These things that will actually uh, weight the scales against you on that last day. Instead, pray. Pray that the Spirit of God would give you endurance. Pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to transform your life. Because when the truth does not humble us or lead us to worship, I don't care how great you may appear, we're simply Belshazzar clones. But when the truth grips us, 
and humbles us. When we acknowledge before the God of the universe, all is not well in my soul. I am not morally perfect. I am not good enough. When we come to him with that sort of humility, God loves to lavish his grace and forgiveness upon us. Paul writes to the Ephesians, God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He does not hold back. His kingdom is described as a party. There is a better way. And we can start to experience it here and now. So when you respond to this, I'm not saying, oh, you just buckle down and get through the drudgery of life until eternal life and everything's better. I mean, that's partly true, but you can also start walking with the God of the universe here and now. And when you meet him in your day-to-day life, it's better than anything that could entertain you. It's better than any pleasure. It's better than any empty religion because the author of life itself is infusing your life with a whole new set of meaning and purpose. You only have to open your hands and let go of the things you're holding and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because we cannot face the writing on the wall by ourselves. But Jesus has faced it for us. And he will carry us through. You simply have to open up your heart to him. and Say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner.